Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live at the Gleaming Streamline Studios of AlloRadioLive.com. I'm Burl Bear. That's Mark Boyer. Magic Man Allen's producer, archivist, champion of a beleaguered and besotted industry. On the phone, the brilliant, the talented, the recyclable, Robin Maharaj. Hi, Robin. Hi, Burl. Welcome back. It's only been how many years? <laughs> um, since 2016. <laughs> five years. Five, only five years. It seems longer ago than that. Seems like just yesterday. <laughs> it, it does. That's when you were 12 years old and had your first best-selling true crime book. And you got the rights back to it, apparently, right? <laughs> Uh, well, I got the rights, and I got an American publisher that was interested in reissuing the story, so it, it's done very well. I'm glad to hear that, because I loved the first version. I loved having you on the show. I thought it was fascinating. And then when I, I heard from uh, uh, your the press publicist about this book, I said, wow, <laughs> I'm having deja vu. <laughs> Deja vu all over again. Yeah, I get to do it all over again. It was so good the first time, we went back for more. <laughs> so. That's right, seconds. Seconds, yeah. Well done, seconds, I might add. So uh, for those people who weren't listening to the show uh, six years ago or five years ago, whatever it was, let's start all over again. How did you wind up mm-hmm. on the inside of a culinary fest of uh, intrinsic interview with Jeffrey Dahmer? A cannibal at that. Yeah, well, it's it's not my interview, of course. Well, I know that, Dahmer, but, but I I interviewed the detective who interviewed and interrogated Jeffrey Dahmer. So so it's uh, through him, and of course he uh, gets you know full praise. Uh, the detective, I mean, who gets full praise for um, obviously the large, very large contribution he made to this project. Unfortunately, he passed away before he ever saw the book come to fruition. I think that's um, Dahmer's fault. His notes and reports. And um, I was able to work from that after I had gotten permission from his widow. So, um, yeah, but it was uh, actually a chance where I had wanted to interview Patrick uh, because I was doing my own article about Jeffrey Dahmer. I had some ideas that I wanted to kind of run by him. And, of course, the opportunity to hear from him about how, you know, he was part of that first um, night when Jeffrey Dahmer was caught, how he became close to Dahmer in terms of Dahmer seemed to trust him, and they had a rapport right away. That bothers me that they had a rapport right away. What did they have in common? Well, I mean, I think right off the bat, uh, uh, Jeffrey just felt very safe uh, with Patrick. The two uh, uh, police that he had encountered earlier in the night um, had sort of roughed him up a little bit. I mean, they had gone into the apartment with the purposes, the sole and only purpose of trying to get a handcuff key back from him so that they could get some handcuffs off his, or would have been his maybe 18th victim. But um, that fellow got out of the apartment and flagged down these police and said, I just want to get these handcuffs off. He was brought back to the apartment by the cops who then said, you know, we just want to get this off and then we'll call it a night. But once they were in the apartment, they right away noticed the smell. Um, They felt that the suspect was kind of acting a little strange. He was sort of, you know, looking in this drawer, looking in that drawer, didn't seem to know what he was doing. He was 
had been drinking, which I guess is suspected right off the bat. And um, then they sort of uh, saw some pictures that were just sitting on a coffee table that were very disturbing. And so they saw body parts. And oh, body. disturbing and photos. How? When you say disturbing photos, yes. do you mean like the Outlaw Radio Christmas party or do you mean like really disturbing photos? <laughs> Really disturbing photos, uh, photos of body parts, photos, photos of uh, like inside the bodies. Oh. And one of the cops immediately thought to himself, "How did this guy get po- um, photos from outside of the medical uh, uh, examiner's office or the coroner? Like, how did this guy do it?" And so they really quickly realized that some of these photos that they were looking at were actually in the apartment that they were oh. standing in with this man. And they knew the medical examiner did not do his autopsies at Dahmer's apartment. That's for sure. They knew that. So they said, grab him. And uh, so they kind of wrestled him down to the ground. And he was fighting them. Like, he was fighting them back. But they kind of tossed with him and wrestled a bit. And then they finally got up on Patman's feet and handcuffed. So when Patrick arrived, uh, that was one of the first things that Dahmer asked was, are you going to beat me up too? And he said, no, no, nothing like that. He said, you know, I'm just going to sort of be here with you. We're going to take you downtown. And then hopefully we'll have a chance to talk. And you can kind of tell me what's been going on. So I think based on that, Dahmer sort of thought, okay, well, maybe this is a guy I can talk to, or maybe at least he'll be willing to listen to me and not judge me and not hit me. <laughs> the, the hitting part is the uncomfortable part. Tom Petty said yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe after what Kennedy saw in that apartment that very first night when he opened the refrigerator, he would have wanted to hit Dahmer, but he really kept his cool and in fact throughout the entire evening. Was, was, was there a, the several weeks. Were there body parts in the fridge? I mean, like, was there a head in there? You know, or something like that? Yeah, but when, when the one detective had opened the fridge, and I think to this day probably doesn't even know what motivated him to do it in the first place, but, you know, he was kind of looking around the apartment while Dahmer was searching for this missing key, and for whatever reason, he just happened to open the fridge, and there was a, a head sitting in kind of like a box, a severed head, a freshly severed head. So that's when they knew that this was... A very serious situation. Yeah, yeah, scene, probably. probably. I think so. we have a serious situation. <laughs> Duh. Uh, NASA. We have yeah, a problem. Houston, we got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great powers of deduction on the part of law enforcement. Yeah, yeah you got to give them credit. Yeah, you credit yeah. too. It's, it's the old thing. Head in the refrigerator. Who that chilling experience? Okay, so they figure out they obviously got problems here with this Dahmer guy. He's got a head in the fridge. He's got a little tie for lunch. Uh, he's got, can't get a key for the handcuffs. So they bring in this guy that looks like uh, you know Wyatt Earp, who's a very calm, and he's also very religious. Am I correct? Yeah, he was like he was Catholic, and uh, you know he held held on to his religion. I think all of his life. Well, what about the bottle? Did he have a battle with the bottle at one time? He did. He actually uh, was a recovering alcoholic. He had been an alcoholic and had actually been sober for many years by the time he ran into Dahmer. But that was another thing that they had in common because I think very quickly the night that uh, Pat started to interrogate Jeff, he realized this is a guy who's been drinking this night, you know, like been drinking tonight. Um, you know, he's obviously coming down from that, and uh, maybe this is somebody who has a problem. Like, he recognized some of the signs, and uh, some of the things that Dahmer was saying kind of meshed with that idea. So he did eventually say to him, Jeff, do you think you have a drinking problem? And Jeff said, yeah. 
And, yeah, uh, that and should be that should that. be the worst of his problems, is he has too much to drink. Well, you know, I think in some ways, like not to say that ever should excuse or, or would have excused what he did, but I mean, he certainly had been start has started drinking at a very young age. He started drinking when he was like a mid teenager and had never really stopped. I don't think. Uh, did, did in the discussions that the detective had with Jeffrey Dahmer, did they reach anything of the underlying? motivations on why he's poking these kids and eating them and stuff. I mean, some of the people he killed were like 31 years old, 26, 27, but others were like 14 and 15, 16 years old. Yeah, there was kind of that range of his victims, and they were all male, of course. Um, you know, his uh, his interest in victimology would have been like males, uh, primarily African-American men, and ones that had really, really good bills and were in good shape. That seemed to be his sort of type. Um, they did delve into it a little bit, and I mean, I think what they came to as far as a conclusion about it, if you could or would, is that he was... Um, like at the time that he was sort of reaching puberty, he had kind of uh, a real interest, and that had started at a slightly younger age, but he had a real interest in roadkill. Like, he wouldn't torture or hurt animals, but he would pick up and scoop up dead animals that he would find um, in the area around Ohio where he lived, which was sort of a ruralish area, if you will. Um, sort of houses with uh, lots of forest area around them and big spaces between the lots and uh, lots of sort of highway roads and things. So he was able to find these, um, you know, dead animals on the road. He'd bring them home. And he was really interested, as he would say, he's interested in the insides of dead things. And so this, oh, and they think it kind of meshed with the time that he was exploring maybe, you know, sexuality. He was going through puberty. He did seem to have some issues about his um, status as a gay man. Like, he wasn't really wanting to tell family. He didn't really know how his family would react to that. So he kind of kept it to himself. Yeah, but well, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's stop there for a second. Let's just stop for a second. He's concerned what his family's going to say if they find out that he's going down on African-American guys or vice versa. However, he's not concerned they're going to find out he's killing these people and eating them. So, <laughs> well, I guess he thought he'd get away with that. <laughs> I mean, you put those things side yeah. by side. What would you be more concerned about? Your mom and dad finding out that you like to give a head to black guys? Or is it finding out that you kill them and eat them? Which one is going to yeah. be? That's really accountable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, let's have a show yeah. of hands kind of on... That's uh, uh, resume. Yeah. <laughs> it's something you really was... I mean, I'm sure by the time it was, he realized, like, oh, my God, it's out there. Not only do I have to worry about my family thinks about this, but the entire world is going to learn what I was up to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, a, too, it was yeah. a bad situation for sure. There's no way he can save his reputation at this point. No, it is pretty much done. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it was also, uh, just to finish that last thought, I think it was also the fact that, you know, he was a very, very shy person, very kind of introverted, and didn't have a lot of friends. I think people thought he was a bit strange. So he had a very rich fantasy life. So I think that, you know, he thought odd things, he thought about weird things, he thought about doing things to men's bodies that excited him sexually. So I think that's kind of the path that they went down, that, you know, he was inside, interested in the inside of dead things, he was drinking too much, he spent way too much time by himself and not really socialized. That reminds me much. of Mark Boyer who has a question for you. Hello. <clears throat> oh, sure. Welcome back. Hi. Um, what, I, I kind of get the feeling that a lot of what he was trying to do was alleviate uh, this lack of love and fear of loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Is that a question or a comment? Yeah, or a, it's a comment. A comment. It's a comment. Would you agree with that, or would our Wyatt Earp character uh, agree with that? Is that kind of one of the underlying I, issues? I absolutely think that, yeah, I absolutely think that that, I agree with that very much, because, um, yeah, he spent a lot of time on his own. He really didn't know how to socialize. I mean, he did seem to have a little bit of the gift of the gab, and that he could go up to these, you know, people who didn't know, these strange people to him and just kind of talk his way into, hey, why don't you come back to my apartment? You know, I'll fix us some drinks and watch a movie or whatever. So he was able to do that. But I mean, I think a lot of people like his peer group and the people, you know, the neighbors and things like that just found him to be a bit of an odd duck. And um, and he also, I think, also had a very big fear of abandonment um, because, you know, like when his parents split up, his mom took his younger brother and took off. And I oh, think she sort of indicated to him. That would be painful. That's, that's upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think she said to him, because she was very upset with her, you know, soon-to-be ex-husband, you know, phone your dad, tell him you're here on your own. And I don't think he did that immediately. I think he kind of, you know, sort of liked the idea of maybe being in this big house by himself and, and uh, having access to a bar and whatever food for a while. And um, and then eventually his dad found out that the mom and the brother had left. And so that's when he moved back and then was suddenly there again in Jeff's life. But, but I mean, the mom leaving very abruptly was a painful part of it and even before that like she did have um, issues of mental illness and so there were times when she was sort of in and out of psychiatric hospitals um, sometimes when she was home she was heavily medicated and sleeping a lot so she kind of wasn't I mean I'm sure she was a good mom as much as she could be but I think there was a lot of problems there where right. she just really wasn't around the way a mom I wonder if the uh, abandonment issues control, really. I wonder about the abandonment yeah, issues sure. if putting a yeah. The head in the refrigerator is a way of keeping his lover from abandoning him. <laughs> well, I mean, his thing was he really wanted a companion, right? But a lot of these guys that he picked up, I mean, it was just a very sort of supposed to be a casual kind of uh, relationship. So at one point, either in the evening or later on, you know, in the nighttime, they would say, well, I got to go because I got to work tomorrow or I got to get home. And that's when it really hit him that, you know, I don't want these men to leave. So he would bring them to his apartment, give them a drink and lace it with drugs so that over the period of the evening, these guys would eventually pass out and then he could strangle them or smother them and um, then he had the body which was really what he wanted it wasn't so much that he wanted to kill that he had an anger and urge to kill it was really what he wanted was the body and then that's where he was just that's where the fantasy really took over because then he could do whatever he wanted with the body sexually it was company for him you know and these are why didn't he buy a ventriloquist dummy (laughs) sorry he could have bought a ventriloquist dummy I mean, <laughs> he, didn't have, to, he did didn't have to do that. I mean, someone could have said that and talked yeah. to him. It's too bad he didn't have a therapist or a counselor or a close personal friend. Yeah. He just sit him down and say, Jeff, yeah. you don't need to kill him before you blow him, and you don't need to put him in the fridge. You know, uh, yeah. we, we can take yeah. you down to the adult store, and we can uh, get you a, a blow-up yeah. guy, yeah. you know? Like Lars and the Real Girl, well, you know, that movie. And we'll just yeah. uh, inflate yeah, him well, and deflate point, him. He actually, yeah, at one point he actually did try to sort of satisfy that, you know, artificially, if you will, by, uh, I think at this time he was living at his grandmother's house who lived in a place called West Dallas, which is like just outside of Milwaukee mm-hmm. um, in Wisconsin. And um, he managed to get into a store and stay there until the store closed. And then once they... 
place, the place was empty. Then he took a mannequin and he apparently dragged this male mannequin home. And uh, he kept it in the closet and would use it, I guess, you know, as a sexual device or toy. But um, his grandmother found it. Oh, <laughs> no. no. Grandma walks and in and he's poking him. a mannequin. That's, that's going to hurt. That's embarrassing. Yeah. Anytime yeah. this happened to me, I've just been humiliated. <laughs> yeah, you want to move out from yeah. grandma? <laughs> Mom, you can keep the mannequin. <laughs> Well, I think until his grandmother found it and then she begged him, you know, pleaded with him, get rid of that thing. You know, I think it kind of scared her a little bit. She had oh, yeah. no idea what was going on, right? So why would her, you know, uh, 19, 20-year-old grandson want a mannequin? Yeah, because usually, you know, the arms screw on and screw off and they have kind of weird expressions and painted eyes. He'd do much better with a mm-hmm. pull-up doll. Trust me. But it's too late yeah. now. <laughs> uh, Burrow? Yeah? Please stop. Okay. About your sexual fetishes, please. I've never had one of those blow-up dolls. I've tried, but I've, my grandmother wouldn't let it in the house. Can you imagine opening a closet door and this thing? Oh, that'd be there. scary as hell. You know, the staring eyes. You think it's a corpse, but sooner or later, it would be. That's what's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, feel- well, I mean, the thing is, that the, the terrible thing is, and I mean, she thought that was bad enough, but I mean, there were other horrors going on in her basement that she didn't find up uh, find out about until after, hmm. uh, you know, her grandson oh, really? was captured and he started to confess. And yeah, and so he was very clear, you know, this person I brought back to grandma's, this person I killed at the apartment, this person, you know, like he was very detailed in his um, confession. And so, yeah, it was it was open news that, yeah, oh. apparently some of these uh, killings had taken place in her home. I bet she put that thing up for sale immediately, if not sooner. <laughs> well, she had guided tours and made a little money yeah, off Yeah, she it. made some money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. There might even be still some body parts in Grandma's house. Well, yeah, well, you know, those are on, well, they they're on display. Yeah. On display. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going bad. This is horrible. Um, we're going we're to get hate mail again this week. Well, I what, just know it. Why would this be, be any different than any oh, other God, week? I know. It's horrifying. People say the worst things about us, and yet they still listen. I don't know why. Well, they're looking to see what, what, what kind of a train wreck this week will be. Yeah, it's a good train, it's though. Their secret shame, bro. Yes, their that's secret right. Shame. Their guilty pleasure. We listen to true crime uncensored. And you came on it twice, which shows it's your guilty pleasure as well. That's right. That's right. So um, it, it seems to me that, it, that it's not common for someone they pick up and put in an interrogation to cop to everything right away. What did, uh, what did Detective mm-hmm. Patrick Kennedy do? What, what kind of techniques did he use to put Dahmer at ease and to get him to tell his story? Uh, well, you know, the first night they brought him in and uh, when Dahmer kind of indicated that, you know, he would be willing to talk to the police, but he really only wanted to talk to this one detective, um, they pretty much said to Kennedy, you know, like, pee on him like glue. If he goes to the male washroom, you know, you follow him in there. If he wants to go get a cup of coffee or whatever, like, just do whatever you need to do to try and keep him talking. And uh, But they realized that, you know, uh, Dahmer was you know, willing, willing to talk to Kennedy. So they use that absolutely to the advantage. And so I think Kennedy's approach was one that he had pretty much used a lot, uh, which was, you know, treat him, treat him the best, you know, you know, can I get you a sandwich? Do you need a cigarette? How about a cup of coffee? Um, you know, 
just try and relax them a little bit. Um, with uh, Dahmer, he kind of said, you know, like, when I start to tell you these things, you know, you're just going to be horrified and you're not going to want to talk to me anymore. And, um, you know, you'll want to judge me and hate me. And Kennedy just reiterated over and over, you know, I'm not here to judge you, Jeff. That's not my job. My job is to just listen to you and hear what you have to say. And maybe between the two of us, we can figure this out. So, I mean, he just sort of really kind of killed him with kindness almost and just really laid it on and just basically provided everything and anything that he could to get him to keep talking, which included coffee and cigarettes, because he knew, I guess, and was able to um, think that, you know, if I leave this room and go into um, the jail just to be held, then I'm not going to have access to cigarettes anymore. So that was probably a strong factor. But um, I think it was Kennedy's rapport and just his um, general niceness. Like, he was a very nice man. I met him um, just shortly before he died. And, um, you know, if I had ever done anything terrible, I'd want to confess to him. Well, good, yeah, he's good. Sort of his big, caring uh, person that just sort of says, you know, you can tell me anything, and I, you know, it's not going to phase me. I think he used that kind of, even though he was only 37 at the time, he used, I'm a seasoned cop, I've been in homicide now for many years, you know, there's nothing he's going to tell me that's going to shock me, Jeff, so, you know, let's just, let's just cut through that and just, you know, you just tell me what you want to tell me and we'll go from there. Fascinating. Same technique I use. One of the things that the detectives did when they started hearing some of this, was there was general disbelief. You know, this guy is just lo- giving us a load of bull. So they went and back <coughs> of the uh, information to see if he was being truthful. Uh, they reached out to an Ohio detective to talk about mm-hmm. Dahmer's first kill. What happened there? Um, well, we brought this detective in, and uh, they said, you know, we have a suspect here. And, of course, by this time, you know, the whole country sort of knew Jeffrey Dahmer's name because his name had been featured in news uh, broadcast CNN and other news agencies. And so pretty much everybody knew who he was by a couple of months into it. And so when they uh, talked to the Ohio police, they said, we've got this guy who says that his first kill, which was in 1978, um, was, you know, this man that he picked up as a uh, hitchhiker. A hitchhiker. And so they said, do you have any reports of any missing man from that time frame that, you know, would fit the bill? And they said uh, that Dahmer felt that if they showed him some pictures that he would be able to pick him out. So the Ohio police ended up sending this detective uh, to come to Milwaukee and meet with a detective and with Dahmer at that time. And um, he said, you know, like at that point, because at that point, Jeffrey Dahmer had, agree- had um, admitted not only to killing this man, but he also had told them what he had done with the body. Um, so initially, he had actually uh, chopped up the body and put it into various garbage bags and had taken it out to the dump. But he had been stopped by an officer on the highway, and this guy, the police, had sort of questioned him a little bit and said, you know, like, what are you doing out so late? And, uh, you know, your car is swerving a little bit. Have you been drinking? Um, so he didn't really give him any trouble or a ticket or anything, but he did kind of a walk, give him a little bit of a warning. Dahmer's excuse was that he had this, these trash bags that he was taking to the dump, and the cop said to him, the dump's closed, so you might as well just do it another day. So he got him to turn around and go home. And so um, then he said he was so spooked by the stopping of the police officer that he decided to chop up the body even more, get it down to as much bones as he could, and then he sort of sprinkled the bones all over the backyard, which was kind of, as I said earlier, a foresty kind of area behind his house. So this cop, you know, fast forward 13 years later, comes equipped with aerial photos of the Dahmer house, 
and some pictures of some men that have gone missing at that time, 13 years earlier, and says, let's show these to Dahmer and see what he says. So maybe he can kind of tell us roughly where he spread these body parts and bones, and maybe he can help us identify if any of these are the missing men that he claimed to have killed. <clears throat> so he does this, he's looking at the map, he's sort of pointing out a few things, he looks at the pictures, he immediately picks out the guy who he identifies as Stephen Hicks, and again, goes through the whole scenario with the Ohio detective in the room to say, you know, I picked him up on the highway, took him back to my house, we were having some drinks, he smoked a little weed, we were wrestling around a little bit, the guy wanted to leave to get back onto the highway to go to his music festival, and I ended up hitting him and uh, killing him, and then I all of a sudden had a dead body in my house. So he's telling them all again, reiterating the story about the garbage and the cop that stopped him. They get out of the room, and Dahmer's sitting there with his stuff from Ohio, and the cop that was there that had been sent to Milwaukee to meet with Dahmer says to the two detectives, you're not going to believe this, but I was the cop that stopped him on that Ohio highway. So it was a real coincidence, and uh, he said, I honestly, he said, as soon as he started retelling that story, he said, I could see this guy in my head, and I said, I wouldn't have remembered the name necessarily, but he said, that was him, and that was I was the cop that stopped him. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that always bugged me about <clears throat> this particular individual and the story behind him is the disparity between the first killing he admits to and the second killing. It's almost nine years. Mm-hmm. So what, what 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 was he doing in that nine years where he managed not to kill anybody? Well, uh, I guess several things. Uh, he was really spooked, I think, by that first killing. Like, you know, he was trying to stop the guy. He was trying to prevent him from leaving. I don't know if he really was intending to kill him. I mean, he admitted to killing him, but, you know, I don't know if the intent was necessarily there. And he certainly took advantage once he realized the kid was dead. You know, he did all the things that he was going to do to the body in terms of sex with the body and uh, you know, it didn't seem to prevent him at all but it did really spook him I think the fact that he almost got caught um, you know the idea that he thought that someday someone's going to come to my door and ask me about this missing kid and the fact that you know he got away with it for a little bit I think it's just I know I don't think it made him really empowered, but I think he just sort of thought, like, that was a really lucky call, close call, and I'd really better just behave myself from now on. Um, by the time he graduated from high school, his dad was kind of on his case, like, what are you going to do with your life? They enrolled him in college, so he was there for, I think, not quite a year. Um, and then he was in the Army for a little while. Then he was in Germany for a bit, and then he came back to the States, and that's when he was in Miami for a little while. And eventually he got, uh, well, he wanted his dad to send him money for a plane ticket, but his dad said, I'm not sending you money. I'll send you a plane ticket and you come back to Ohio. So he ended up back there. And then he was just in kind of a series of dead-end jobs, I would say, you know, and just kind of bouncing around from his grandma's house to an apartment that he would find and live on his own for a bit. And, um, you know, I think the idea of that guy, you know, the further away he from he got he got from it, the more he realized I got away with it, and, you know, there's no reason that anyone would suspect me in this missing person case, but, you know, he did sort of want to hold off because he was having these fantasies and these desires to to, to take a person, uh, bring them back to his apartment under the guise of, you know, a, an evening visiting and being together with having drinks and maybe watching a movie, but he knew, it, and he knew eventually what he was going to do was to drug that person and then 
you know, kill that person and do things with them. Initially, he wasn't killing them, though. Initially, he was just trying to um, kind of like, um, like he was, you know, he was doing this thing where he was like drilling holes in the head because he was hoping that he could kind of keep them alive, but would still do things with them, but they would be very compliant, right? They wouldn't yeah. be able to foster yeah. confrontation. Nothing like putting a drill bit through someone's head to calm them down, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> but that didn't work, and no. he ended up killing those men anyway. So eventually he just said, you know what? In order for me to get what I want, I need I need these victims to come in alive. As soon as he locked that door on the boat, you know, he realized that, you know, these victims are mine and I can do whatever I want. I'll drug them and I'll kill them and then I can do what I want with them. Today we want to eat a few of these, not euphemistically, but actually consume them as one would a, you know, a Philly steak sandwich. Yeah, it, it was very much a progression, though. Like, I mean, he, he didn't cannibalize, you know, in the very beginning that he was killing. Like, it was more towards the end. And, um, you know, they asked him, why would you do that? What was your interest in that at all? And he said he was, well, I think there was a part of him that felt that these victims would then always be with him if he consumed them this way. Right. I think a little bit was, you know, that was a way of getting rid of <laughs> the bodies. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful double, no double service out. there, yeah. Not only does it get rid <laughs> of the bodies, but it gets to be part of you yeah. forever. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and also just to fulfill maybe some kind of strange curiosity he had. One of my favorite black comedies, Eating Raul. Eating Raul. Yeah, Ra <laughs> Raul could have been, he and Jeff could have been best pals at one time. Well, Raul was <laughs> consumed. So. Yes, he was. Jeffrey Dahmer was consumed also in his own way. Uh, it's a sad story. I mean, not only sad for the people he killed, especially sad for Grandma after finding the damn mannequin, but sad for him. I'm sure he was very self-conscious about what he was doing. And embarrassed, mm -hmm. and humiliated, and mm -hmm. the more embarrassed and humiliated he got, the more aroused he got, and he had to do it again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a rough situation. Yeah, there were times. I mean, I mean, to, towards the end, yeah. I mean, he was really kind of out of control. He was kind of in a free fall, and, and he was really killing, really, like, randomly and very much without too much thought. He was drinking way more. But in the first part of his killing career, if you will, you know, he, he was sort of trying to pace it out, and he was being pretty careful about who he would encounter and where he was picking these men up from. But, um, you know, somewhere along the line, he kind of got a little floppy, maybe a little caught. Yeah. And uh, and he started to make some mistakes. Well, that's what they call criminal pride. If you get away with something, you forget that it's because yeah. you were well prepared or things were favorable. You think somehow it's because of you. It's you that you got away with right. it. Instead of just a series of coincidences or or well being well prepared. Bank robbers have that problem. Right. They'll plan a, a, a heist yeah. meticulously. And then each time they do it, they get sloppier and sloppier and sloppier forgetting that the reason it worked yeah. is because they were so meticulous in the first place. They think it's them. Right. I'm invincible. <laughs> You're wrong. Right. Correct. So tell me, oh, oh ye of a great career, <laughs> when did you get done with your vacation at the Canadian Lakes? What part of Canada are you laking in, by the way? Um, I'm spending the uh, weekend, it's a long weekend here in Canada, at uh, Falcon Lake in the White Shell. Where is that? Um, it's just east of Winnipeg, where I live, mm -hmm. um, very close to the Manitoba-Ontario border. Okay, all right. I'm over here on the West Coast. You know, it's we go great to cottage. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's great cottage country around here. It's beautiful. You're lovely. Canada is quite lovely. And if you're looking for maple syrup, you don't have to go very far. 
But the thing I find fascinating about about Canada, two things. I, well, three things I found fascinating about Canada. One, my uncle in Toronto owned a soda pop factory, and they delivered soda pop to your door, mm-hmm. like a, like wow. the milk like the milkman used to, right? Here yeah. comes this. They wow. delivered it, you know. Pick up the empties and give you the new soda pop bottles. I thought that was wow. something. That was yeah. My cousin Max in Toronto did that. Thought that was phenomenal. <laughs> The other thing <laughs> was this thing with hazelnuts. Because Americans weren't really into hazelnuts, but the British and the Canadians mm-hmm. are always going to have hazelnuts in their candy. And then the shock to realize that snap, crackle, and pop from Rice Krispies in Canada are teenagers who wear sweatshirts. Where in America, they're little <laughs> weird elves with pointy ears. Right. <laughs> Now, how the hell Snap, Crackle, and Pop wound up being teenagers wearing sweatshirts in Canada? I do not know. It's probably some deep, dark secret. No, I think it's just some idiot marketer going, let's see, we need to sell this stuff in Canada. Yeah. Well, well they don't, probably don't like elves in Canada. They're probably prejudiced against them. So we'll come up with teenagers in sweatshirts. That'll do it. Snap, Crackle, and Pop. George yeah. Carlin does uh, has a uh, classic... Uh, snap, crackle, and pop bit that he does. It's very funny. Well, I'll have to look that one up. You should. It and is. Jeffrey Dahmer, if he had his choice, he would have left the elves behind and he would have taken those three guys in the sweatshirts. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been snap, crackle, and pop, all right. <laughs> I love Rice Krispies. Those yeah. Are the best. <laughs> yeah, they make noise when you eat them, but his victims didn't because they were dead. Yeah. I mean, it's a sad story. If I had a family member of mine eaten by Jeffrey Dahmer, I'd be aggravated. And I'd probably want some sort of, you know, legal something. Wasn't he, what happened to Dahmer after he goes to prison? Did someone stab him to death? No, he got his head smashed Um, in with another inmate. And two inmates got their heads smashed by a third. Yeah, it was a very strange coincidence, but the uh, kind of weapon he used on the very first victim, victim that we talked about on Ohio, Stephen Hicks, was kind of like the handle from a barbell, yeah. and the uh, weapon that was used against Dahmer when he was in prison was the same thing. It was like a handle from a barbell. But this one fellow um, cornered, I guess, these two inmates, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and another fellow, and he beat them both to death. So what are they going to do to the What are they going to do to the guy? Send him to prison? He's already in prison. What can they do to him? Well, well you know, when he first started off there, he was in solitary confinement, and uh, he was the one who went to the prison officials several times and said, "I want to be moved into the general population." And they they kept warning him and saying, "Like you've got a price on your head. Basically, you're a marked man. You shouldn't do this." But he said, "I'm just tired of living in solitary. I don't care. I'll take my chances." And um, sure enough, within you know very short period of time, he was killed in prison. So I think, uh, well, I think it's pretty obvious that he didn't really want to live a long life once he was there. You know, he no, he felt he so. deserved to die for what he did. And he um, right. and I think once he was there, he thought it was just not a very good place to live. And when they did the autopsy on his body after he was um, killed in prison, and of course, well, he actually died in a hospital. They they took his beaten body into a hospital and tried to um, tried to uh, save him, but he ended up dying. But when they did the autopsy, they said, you know, he didn't have any defensive wounds on his arm, so he obviously did not put up a fight at all, so he allowed himself to be beaten to death. Yeah. Uh, he had, when, when he was uh, confessing in these interviews, 
um, it, it he kind of felt like he was making amends by uh, coming clean and letting the families know where the remains are so they could have closure. But <clears throat> why was it at that... I mean, he knew he was caught. If he wanted to make amends, why didn't he just stop? Or maybe he wasn't capable of it. No, that's, that's probably yeah, why I the think- cop could identify with him, you know. Can't, can't stop drinking. Can't stop killing. Yeah, I, I don't know of a lot of serial killers. I mean, he managed, Dahmer managed to start stop after that, you know, like, he had that one killing, as you pointed out, and then there was this big nine-year stretch before he killed again. So, but I mean, most serial killers, once they start, the only way they are stopped is if someone stops them. Um, but I think for Dahmer, like, it wasn't really so much about... Um, uh, you know, sort of, I mean, it was for the family's sake, but I mean, even more importantly, uh, in terms of letting those people know what happened to their loved ones, it was actually identifying who those loved ones were, because um, in the case of um, most of them, they just had body parts, and they um, had sort of a few men that uh, people had reported missing, but they didn't have, it wasn't as though they were hunting a serial killer, they found Dahmer and then realized there was a serial killer who'd been living and killing in their midst. So they had to kind of work backwards. And so they really relied on Dahmer to be able to remember the encounters, the dates, you know, roughly, where the encounter had occurred. And then they had him going through photographs to identify who his victims were. Because, they, you know, and back in 91, you know, there was DNA, but it wasn't used nearly as much as it's used nowadays. And so they really relied on Dahmer to, to identify who those victims were. So that, of course... Uh, was good for the families because then they were able to confirm that, you know, the person that was in their life didn't just suddenly disappear one day or take off. As the police may have suggested, they had actually been um, unfortunate enough to run into Dahmer, cross paths with Dahmer. Who came up with the title, for the new title for the book, Grilling and Dahmer, which I just thought was really rude? (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I can't take the credit for that one. That one came from the publisher. And, uh, you know, at first uh, I was showing the cover to somebody and I said, they laughed when they saw that. Grilling Dahmer. Oh, that's really clever. And I said, well, you know, like, do you think that's intentional? (laughs) Yes, I'm pretty sure it was intentional. (laughs) You know? Because I often say we're, we're going to have... What a, I say is at least, at least it's memorable. Yeah, well, it's like we're going to have uh, Robin Maharaj and we're going to grill her like a swordfish. What about grilling Dahmer? So it just fit right in. I saw that and went, it must be somebody a wild blue. <laughs> Probably the owner. <laughs> might, have been, uh, might have been, uh, you know, what's his name? <laughs> or Ashley or... Uh, What's her name? I can't remember people's names anymore. I can't remember your name, uh, whatever your name is. Mark. <clears throat> My name's Mark. Uh, I'm, Pearl. I'm the schmuck that buys food and drives you around. I think it was, Steve. I think it was Steve that came up with that one. So. Uh, who yeah. was it, do you Very think? Very clever. Whoever it was, they, they deserve it. was Steve. I think it was Steve yeah. Jackson? That figures. Yeah, I think it was, actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he actually. I, I had to send interview. it. To, I had to send it to uh, Kennedy's widow, of course, because I wanted to let her know, you know, what's been going on. So her remark is, "Somebody has a very good sense of humor." <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's probably probably Steve Jackson. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, we actually had a fight with a werewolf and go, and lived. Oh, yeah. You ask him about that. Sometime. Well, they, they have. They now have a pill for lycanthropy. So it's do okay. they really? Yeah. There's a pill for lycanthropy. If I swallow that, you'll be. A, you'll I'll be swallow a anything. <laughs> Send that young boy right over here. Okay. 
Now, where were we? Uh, okay, are you going to do some more true crime books? Because this one's been a hit twice. So, this uh, hopefully it's, it's a bigger hit this time than it was last time. Uh, it was. It's always been a great well, book. Well, I think that, the, yeah, the folks at Well Blue have been fantastic in terms of just getting the word out that this book is out there now and that it's available, and uh, and uh, they just did a wonderful job marketing. So uh, it's, you know, it's going to do, I think, much better. I mean, the first one did very well for the little bit of marketing that we were able to do with it. But, um, yeah, I'm expecting great things with this one because they just have done an awesome job getting the word out. And it, and it is a very good book because I have it. I have the original edition. Now, hopefully, I'll give this one to you to add to my uh, Robin Maharaj collection, her I greatest see. hits. <laughs> wow. Robin, thank you for joining us. Side. 